from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. in the biggest overdose crisis that our country has ever seen. We have to take action and we have to take evidence-based action. So this is something that would help people figure out if what they're taking is about to kill them and we've made it illegal for them to use that test. Yes, absolutely. If we're going to address the overdose crisis, we have to get down to the root causes. So we have to deal with jobs and mental health and housing and racial disparities um, in order to get ourselves out of this cycle of overdose and death that we've been stuck in. I'm Sarah Fenske. Missouri is looking at a $450 million windfall. The money is coming from the state's portion of litigation over the opioid crisis. Three opioid distributors and manufacturer Johnson & Johnson are on board for the settlement. If Purdue Pharma signs on, it would be another $50 million on top of that. So what should we do with the money? Liz Chiarello has some thoughts on that. She's an associate professor of sociology in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at St. Louis University. She's also a former fellow at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University. And she joins us today. Liz, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So $450 million, or could even be $500 million, this feels like a ton of money. How big is this settlement? So the settlement is big, but it's not as if we won the lottery. You know, we shouldn't quit our day job. Um, It's more like finding a $10,000 or $15,000 scratcher. Um, So we'll make these dollars stretch the furthest if we double down on the things that we're already doing and do more and don't expect this money to substitute for the money that we're investing in fighting the overdose crisis. So it would be a mistake to think of this as, hey, this is just going to solve everything. We've got this money. We're done. Oh, absolutely. One of the benefits of this money is it's going to be paid out over a about an 18-year period. Um, And so right now, a lot of our funding for overdose prevention and intervention um, comes through federal grants, and they come in two-year blocks. And so we never know when that money is going to come in or if it's going to come in. And it makes it it really hard to make long-term plans or to build infrastructure. And so um, it helps with that. That kind of longevity will help, but it's not going to substitute for our existing programs. And even beyond that, you have some notes of caution here. You have an op-ed that was published last week in the USA Today. This is a must read here. You compare this to the lawsuits against tobacco companies. Um, That netted states $206 billion. And you write that almost none of it went to reduce smoking harms. Almost none? Almost none. I want to say it was less than 10%. So these states received these tremendous windfalls. And a lot of that money just disappeared into state budgets. Um, And almost none of it went to helping the people who were harmed by the tobacco companies. And um, it's not just the tobacco cases. There have also been earlier opioid cases. Like 2009, there was a huge payout, um, almost none of which went to actually treating the crisis. So this time around, we've just got to get it right. Yeah, that seems crazy. I mean, this money is specifically supposed to help. And yet some states, I guess, just see this as a windfall, not even attached to the problem that it's meant to solve. Absolutely. And that's part of why we're seeing the big case that just came down that has about 3,000 different plaintiffs. The cities are suing independently, in part because they don't trust the state um, to, to dole that money out fairly and appropriate. 
appropriately. Now, uh, the Missouri Attorney General has promised that that money is going to go to treatment. But as we mentioned in the op-ed, not all treatment is created equal. So we've got to make sure that that money goes to evidence-based treatment and dealing with the root causes of addiction um, and not just um, not just going to the same, same old things that aren't working. So let's talk about what treatment works and what treatment doesn't work. I mean, yeah, I hear treatment and I think, okay, great. That's exactly where I want this money to go. Go ahead with that. Not that simple. Where should we be spending this money? So we need to spend this money on evidence-based treatment, treatment that has um, that has scientific um, proof that shows that it works. Two of our most effective treatments are what are called medications for opioid use disorder, methadone and buprenorphine. Methadone is provided in, um, in clinics, um, and it, it's provided usually every single day. Somebody has to show up at the clinic to get their methadone treatment. Buprenorphine is provided in doctor's offices, but only about 10% of primary primary care providers um, offer buprenorphine. Um, Normally when we think about treatment, we think about 28-day inpatient abstinence-based treatment. Um, That works for some people, but it also puts other people at risk because it lowers people's tolerance. And that means, and addiction is a chronic relapsing disease. So that means that when they use again, if they use the same amount that they used before, they're at a really high risk of overdose and death. So if I make it 28 days and then I'm back in trouble again, I could actually be in a worse place than where I started. Absolutely. People are really vulnerable at transitions. So if they're transitioning out of prison or jail, if they're transitioning out of the hospital, they've overdosed and then they've been hospitalized and now they're transitioning out, and when they're transitioning out of treatment programs. And so those are the times when we especially need to support people um, to make sure that they stay alive and in recovery. So you're bullish on these two medication-based treatments here, this methadone and buprenorphine. You say in this story for USA Today that these are largely inaccessible to most people who need them. If they're so good, why is that? Well, so methadone has been around since the 1970s, um, but the laws that created methadone limit them to these special clinics. That's not true everywhere. So in Canada, for example, you can get methadone at your pharmacy, um, but not here. Um, it's in these special clinics. And uh, imagine for, for a second if you were a diabetic, for example, and you, um, and you needed insulin, and you had to show up at a clinic that might be very far from your house. You had to do that every single morning, um, and that was the only way that you could get a life-saving medication. That's the position that we've put people on methadone in. Um, and we need to change that. We need to make methadone more readily available. It's a strong evidence-based treatment. And you say Canada's doing this. Have they had problems associated with this that we'd have to design a way to make sure, say, people aren't abusing it or it doesn't become a problem of its own? Actually, the biggest problem that they had was that they reformulated um, their methadone um, and uh, saw a huge number of, of overdoses as a result of that. So when you're providing a, a good drug, um, to people who need it, I don't think we're seeing the problems that you're thinking about. Interesting. So this is something where it sounds like a regulator- regulatory framework would need to change. Is this something states would need to take on, or this is something the federal government would have to do? It's something that the federal government would have to do, but, you know, um, and this is where COVID comes in. It's, you know, COVID has been devastating. Our overdose rates are up um, 30%. However, we've also been able to test out certain things like telemedicine, for example, and they've relaxed some of the restrictions on on methadone to make it more accessible. Um, and that's worked really well. So it's more about keeping things in place that we have demonstrated evidence uh, that work. Hmm. So this has worked in the past year or so, the way they've done this methadone stuff. What about bu- buprenorphine? It's such a hard word. It's a hard word. 
Um, so you're saying that's also, that's um, that's largely inaccessible to the people who need it. Why is that? So um, a lot of that has to do with the fact that addiction uh, treatment is not fully integrated into mainstream medicine, even though it should be. Um, but it's also the case that um, up until recently, physicians have had to get what's called a data waiver to be able to prescribe buprenorphine. It's terribly ironic because buprenorphine is also a pain treatment. And so any physician can prescribe buprenorphine for pain. But if you want to prescribe it for addiction treatment, you have to have a very special um, a, a special addition to your licensure. Um, and, and then it limits how many people you can see. But the limits aren't necessarily fully the problem because a lot of physicians don't even prescribe to their cap. There's a lot of um, promise, though, in nurse practitioners providing buprenorphine and even pharmacists hmm. doing so through a collaborative practice agreement with physicians where the physician does the initial intake and then the pharmacist manages the medication. Um, and so there are ways of expanding our workforce. And that's especially important in places like rural areas where pharmacies outnumber physicians. Is there a potential for abuse with buprenorphine? Is that why we want to keep it so tightly held in this tiny group of physicians who have this extra training? Um, so a lot of people like to are concerned about buprenorphine diversion, but really the problem is not that people are, are sharing buprenorphine, it's that people can't get access. So people who can get access are then sharing buprenorphine with other people who can't. But you're, you're not going to overdose on buprenorphine, okay. for example. That's interesting. So we're holding this much more tightly than we would need to if we put in place a good system. Yes, absolutely. Overall, what you're talking about is harm reduction. This is kind of a new way for some people of thinking about the problems of drug addiction in this country. What's the thinking here? So the thinking here is that we need to meet people where they're at. A lot of our drug uh, policy is based on ideas about abstinence and ideas about punishing people who use drugs. Harm reduction says, you know, people are going to use drugs, but we can make sure that they're using those drugs safely and that they have access to treatment um, when they need it. So some examples of harm reduction are Narcan, which is an opioid overdose antidote, um, testing drugs. I mean, our, our drugs are, our drug supply, our illicit drug supply is basically the Wild West right now. It's rife with fentanyl, which is a drug many times stronger than heroin. Um, and people need to know what's in their drugs. Um, other things include uh, syringe provision programs, providing um, sterile syringes to people who inject drugs, as well as cotton swabs and rubbing alcohol. Um, but that's all done in programs that have health provi healthcare providers available so that if people are interested in getting into treatment or interested in transitioning onto buprenorphine or finding a practitioner, they can do that. Um, so harm reduction isn't the end. It's the beginning of a relationship. So this feels like a sea change in how we've talked about drugs in this country. I mean, wh I guess what's driving this, this idea that we need to think about this differently from the base? We can't just force people to get off drugs. Well, I think fundamentally it's that we know that what we've been doing for the last 50 years hasn't been working. And even what we've been doing for the last 20 years hasn't been working. Um, we've really been pushing towards criminalizing care, you know, um, making it um, harder to prescribe and dispense opioids. We've pushed towards punishing patients. But all that does is send patients out into um, a very dangerous, very dangerous territory. Um, like I've mentioned, we have this really toxic drug supply. And so if people are using those drugs, they're at risk. Um, and the bottom line is that dead people don't recover. Mm -hmm. And so if we want to save lives, we have to meet people where they are and gently 
pull them um, into a place that's better for them. Um, but we can't create a hard line around abstinence and expect to, to keep people alive to help them. I'm glad you mentioned just um, how contaminated some of these drugs are. I feel like there's a lot of misinformation out there about fentanyl. And people are saying things like, oh, you know, make sure you don't do fentanyl. It's not as simple as deciding not to do fentanyl. The fentanyl is in all these other drugs. Um, drug testing, how would that work? You said basically to help people understand whether or not the drug they're doing has been contaminated by a different drug? Yes, absolutely. And um, and yes, I want to make sure that your listener, that our listeners know um, that uh, we're not talking about prescription fentanyl. Some people may have been prescribed fentanyl. That's not the drug that's on the street. Completely different deal It's there. a completely different drug. It's a synthetic um, fentanyl that's made in illegal labs. Um, so the... Um, what happens with fentanyl is, yes, it gets mixed into a lot of other drugs. It's also um, so much more powerful. So, for example, if you're taking a drug across borders, you can take a lot less of it than you would have to take of something like heroin. Um, and so it gets pressed into pill form. It gets sold as um, it gets sold as cocaine. It gets sold as heroin. And so people just don't know what's in their drugs. Um, there are ways of testing. There, there are strips you can use to test. The problem is that those are illegal under drug paraphernalia laws. And so we need to change our laws to allow people um, to keep themselves safe when they're using drugs. So this is something that would help people figure out if what they're taking is about to kill them and we've made it illegal for them to use that test. Yes, absolutely. Boy, some of the ironies here in this subject. Um, we're talking today to Liz Chiarello. She's a professor of sociology at St. Louis University, talking about what we should be doing with the, the money we're getting for the opioid crisis. If you have a question or a comment about this topic, we want to invite you to join our conversation. We're at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Maybe you've grappled with these issues yourself. Maybe someone in your family has, and you have a perspective to share. Give us a call. You can also tweet us at STL on air. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation with Liz. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com. And now back to our conversation. My guest today is Liz Chiarello. She's an associate professor of sociology at St. Louis University. She's also a former fellow at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University. And she has some thoughts about what Missouri should do with the $450 million that it's going to get to deal with opioids. And it seems like, Liz, the number one point here is they need to spend this on things that will actually help people struggling with opioids. How big a problem does this continue to be at this point? Oh, it's tremendous. Um, so overdose rates are up 30 percent in Missouri um, in 2020. And uh, we've lost about 870,000 people to overdose in the last 20 years nationwide. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is getting worse. It's not getting better. And so as we think about how to spend these funds, we really need to focus on four goals. One of them is stopping overdose deaths. The second is expanding access to evidence-based treatment. 
The third is ensuring access to opioids for chronic pain patients who need them. And the last one is eliminating racial inequality in overdose and pain treatment. In 2018, for example, overdose rates in Missouri went down for white Americans, uh, for white Missourians, but they went up for black Missourians, about 15, 15% or so. Hmm. Um, and so we have to make sure that we're, we're helping the communities that need help. And that means making sure that all of those people, people who use drugs and people in black communities, have a seat at the table when we're deciding how we spend this money. It's interesting. You were talking about how hard it is to get your hands on some of these treatments right now that we have. Is that maybe part of the reason that there's been such a high percentage in these historically underserved communities? Yes, absolutely. Um, lack of access to health care. Missouri Medicaid expansion can go far towards ensuring access to treatment. Um, states that have expanded Medicaid have done significantly better um, than states that haven't in terms of curbing overdose deaths. And so that's a really good starting point. I want to go to the phone lines and just uh, want to remind people our phone lines are open. If you have a story about this, if this is something you've dealt with or a loved one has, our phone lines are open, 314-382-8255. Again, that's 382-TALK. Cody is calling from Quincy. Cody, hi. You're on St. Louis on the Air. Hi. Nice to meet you guys. Yeah, I'm currently on my way across state lines to Hannibal to get my medication-assisted treatment on buprenorphine right now. And it's been a wonderful resource. Um, it, it's helped me stay clean. I know lots of people out here struggle to get in. A lot of people are homeless. A lot of people are overdosing on even methamphetamine laced with fentanyl. And it's hard for people to get into treatment. And it's hard for people to get access to these doctors. But it really does save lives. And it's a, a wonderful, wonderful um, thing that's that's come about, and I really hope they do expand access to it because there are so many people who cannot get access to these treatments, and they really are saving lives. Cody, I'm so glad to hear about your experience. Was it hard for you um, to get access to this buprenorphine? I myself have been lucky. I've had access from the very beginning, um, and I've been extremely lucky. I'm on Medicaid. So I've had access and it pays for that and I've been lucky, but there are so many people that are homeless, that don't have IDs, that that can't get access to these medicines, either because of transportation or insurance issues. it's It's an expensive medicine. Yeah. Cody, thank you for sharing that experience. And and we want to wish you the best of luck as you continue to get this treatment. I hope that continues to work for you. Liz, it's interesting to hear Cody talk about this. He's in Quincy, which is in Illinois. They had expanded Medicaid long before Missouri uh, was contemplating doing that. You think this could change things up in Missouri where people like Cody could now be have an easier time getting it here in Missouri? Yes, absolutely. And I'm glad Cody called in to share his experience. Um, One of the things that he mentioned that I think is incredibly important is he talked about housing, how a lot of people don't have housing, and then also the affordability of these drugs. Um, If we're going to address the overdose crisis, we have to get down to the root causes. So we have to deal with jobs and mental health and housing and racial disparities um, in order to get ourselves out of this cycle of overdose and death that we've been stuck in. And so housing is really key. We've got to deal with the fundamentals, too. Cody, I hope you're still there. You mentioned how expensive uh, buprenorphine is. Do you have any sense of how much you'd be paying for this if you weren't in a program that helped cover it? Out of pocket, I think it's, you know, like eight eight or nine hundred dollars, I think, for a 30-day supply. Um, that, that's, that's 
um, a guess. It, it, wow. It's up there, though. It's a pretty high number. Yeah, that definitely seems pretty steep for the average person to try to afford. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially a homeless person or someone that, you know, doesn't even know where they're going to sleep that night. It's almost impossible to get. Well, well, Cody, thanks again for sharing that. And for those who might have heard trucks going by in the background, I understand Cody actually pulled over uh, to make this phone call, which we appreciate. That's a way to be safe. But that also explains that background noise. And it's great to hear a success story here. Absolutely. Um, so this idea of harm reduction, this feels like something that um, it's just it's so different than how we've dealt with drugs in this country. We've gone trying to throw people in jail. We did that for decades. <laughs> Didn't really work there. And I think you might get some pushback from some people in St. Louis. They would say that, hey, if you're sort of facilitating this, you're just going to make it easier for people to continue in their addiction. People need to hit rock bottom in order to turn things around. What would you say to that? Well, first, I would say that treatment is not a one-size-fits-all proposition. There are some things that work well. Abstinence works well for some subset of the population, but it doesn't work well for everybody. We're in the biggest overdose crisis that our country has ever seen. We have to take action, and we have to take evidence-based action. I would also say that those ideas about getting someone clean or needing to hit rock bottom are part of a cultural imaginary about addiction that does not match the experience of people on the ground. You just heard from Cody uh, talking about his experience. Um, there are many people out there like him, and there are many people who, um, if they had the resources that Cody has, would have um, success stories as well. So we need to support those people. Liz, I'm curious about your work. This is something where I've talked to other people in the public health space who say a lot of these things you're saying. You're saying this as a sociologist. What got you into studying this topic? You know, I'll tell you, I arrived on it quite by accident. I never set out to be a drug researcher. I was actually researching reproductive health, um, and I was talking to pharmacists about their willingness to provide emergency contraception. Um, and this was back in 2008, 2009, so we weren't talking about the opioid crisis constantly every day the way we are now. Um, and I asked pharmacists, what are the key ethical issues that you face in daily practice? And I thought they would tell me about contraception. And across the board, they said opioids. And I said, tell me more. So I ended up with all this data about how pharmacists make decisions about providing opioids um, that then uh, launched into my larger study that's about healthcare and law enforcement and how they're dealing with the opioid crisis that's supported by the National Science Foundation. Wow, that sounds so interesting. And so this is something that um, they were just eager to talk to you about. People hadn't talked to them about this part of things before. Absolutely. Pharmacists um, often, often sociologists talk to physicians. They might talk to nurses. They often don't talk to pharmacists. And so I think they had a lot to say. Um, but also they were just confronting this every single day, and they didn't know what to do. They weren't getting a lot of guidance. And so I think it was good for them to have a chance to talk about it. But it's been really interesting to see. I've gone back and re-interviewed a lot of those same pharmacists, and it's been interesting to see how things have changed for them over time. I'm curious to hear just a little bit more about that. I don't mean to go down on a digression, but this is so interesting. Interesting. So they were struggling with when to dispense these opioids. People were coming to them where maybe they suspected there was a, a case of, of them being overused. Yes, absolutely. And so um, they pharmacists are in a difficult position. Most people think that pharmacists don't have discretion, that they just dispense whatever it is the doctor prescribes. That's not true. Pharmacists are licensed professionals. Um, they make their own decisions. And in most states, they can refuse to dispense drugs um, that they think are problematic. Pharmacists are really a check and balance on physicians. I mm. mean, if physicians misprescribe, you actually do want your pharmacist to refuse to dispense um, to keep you healthy and to save your life. Um, but 
Uh, but yes, when I first started interviewing pharmacists, they had a really hard time deciding who were the patients who were who needed opioids to treat pain, who was dealing with an opioid use disorder, and then who was diverting drugs, who was selling drugs on mm. the street. And so they just, you know, they were doing their best to make decisions about um, to categorize people and then decide um, what resources to give them. So they were on the front lines of this before the rest of us were really talking about it. You said there's been a change. How how has what they're seeing changed? Well, so one of the big changes is that states have adopted prescription drug monitoring programs. Missouri finally did. We finally did. And um, PDMPs are, they're big data surveillance technologies that come from law enforcement. Um, and there's, some of them create risk scores. They basically show where a patient has gotten medication, um, from which physicians, in what volume, um, and then they feed that information back to healthcare providers. They also feed that information back to law enforcement. PDMP data isn't protected under HIPAA. It's hmm. a different kind of information. And so then physicians and pharmacists can use that information to make decisions about providing care. Um, but what I find is that it using a tool like that pushes providers towards policing patients um, and with the motivation being pushing them out of the healthcare system or refusing to provide them care, which because our our illicit drug supply is so toxic, that just makes those people more vulnerable to overdose and to death. So the answer is not to stop prescribing opioids. It's actually to pull those people back into the healthcare system as effectively as we can. So you can get the one that's not contaminated with fentanyl. Absolutely. Interesting. It's, it's it's interesting how for every step that's meant to be in the right direction, there's always repercussions that people don't see. And I'm sure you see that in your work. Yes, it's the rule of unintended consequences. Let's. Uh, I'm going to squeeze in one last phone call here. Uh, Dan is calling from St. Louis. Dan, hi. You're on St. Louis on the air. Dan, hi. So much for, hi, sorry. Thank uh, you so much for having this um, great discussion. You know, we need to shed a lot of light on this stuff. Um, my question is, you know, um, the as far as methadone goes and, you know, with the contrast that with harm reduction um, and having people come daily for the first 90 days, you know, uh, I'd like to know um, your guests' views on, you know, you know, how we would dis- distribute methadone in a, in a safe manner since it doesn't have a ceiling effect like buprenorphine uh, does. Uh, Dan, that's a good question. And I know, again, you're not a, a healthcare provider at this point, but would you have any thoughts on that, Liz? Absolutely. We can take a page out of Canada's book and we can provide them in pharmacies. So um, pharmacies are much more plentiful than methadone clinics. Um, and so somebody could go to the pharmacy. So one option is they could go to the pharmacy every day. Now, that's, that doesn't solve the problem, but you're closer to a pharmacy than you are usually to a methadone clinic. Another option is there are lock boxes that you can use that have have codes that you enter each day. So you take the lockbox home and use something like that. There are a number of different ways that we can do this that don't require people to go to a clinic every day. Uh, Dan, okay. thank you for that question. And unfortunately, um, we are out of time here today. But Liz Chiarello, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and getting us thinking about all these important issues. Yes, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you.
St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.